Our scripture lesson today comes right in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the greatest teaching ever given by the smartest man who ever lived, found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so right in the middle of that, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And he said, do it like this. Let's share in God's good word together. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply like this. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what's best. As above, so below. Keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. us not into temptation. Jesus says this is how we are to pray. Now, why would God lead us into temptation? And if there was some good, wonderful, wise reason for God to lead us into temptation, why would we pray for that not to happen? Since we know that God is always doing the very best thing for all of us. These questions have been around since the time of Jesus. And today we will look at some of the folks, the answers that have been given over the tradition's history by some of the smartest people who have given their lives to study the scriptures um, in their original language and to translate them to us today, to find God's truth in the Lord's Prayer. So my name is Mark Foster, founding senior pastor here at Acts 2. We are in week five of the Lord's Prayer. Each and every one of our sermons are online now. You can go to our YouTube channel and, and catch up if you would like. Uh, We're going to talk about and lead us. Lead us. That's what God does. God leads us. And so as a way to, before we get to the temptation part, very quickly, we're going to catch up for those who this may be your first time with us. At week one, we talked about whose father? Our father, right? All the people on the planet's father. Our father is the loving God of how many people? All people throughout all time. Not just us now, but all time, forward and backwards. Reverend Adam Hamilton, in his book on the Lord's Prayer, he says it like this. We live in a world that is focused on my, mine, and me, but Jesus teaches us to pray how? Our, us, and we. So our Father, who art in heaven. Well, what's heaven? Heaven is where what God wants done is done. That's all that means. And that that happens every once in a while here. You can kind of see it. You know that when it happens. It's a beautiful thing. You never forget that. Uh, Maybe like at the birth of your child, when it's exactly this new life coming into the world as God intends. And it's just a beautiful, holy, sacred time. And there will be one day where that's the way it is all the time. It's always good. It's always right. It's always peaceful. There's always enough for everybody. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Well, what does hallowed mean? Here's the truth of it. Our lives either hallow or desecrate God's name every day. Every choice we make, you're either bringing people into the kingdom or you're pushing them away from the kingdom. Every single choice that we make either hallows or desecrates God's holy name. And we're not to take the Lord's name in vain. We know this from the Ten Commandments. So that's week one. Week two, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's the same thing twice. Thy kingdom come, God's kingdom, where what God wants done is done, thy will be done. Oh, it's the same thing. You have a kingdom, I have a kingdom, God has a kingdom, and the war that starts all other wars is the kingdom between our kingdom and God's kingdom. And if God's kingdom is first, then our kingdom is just fine. It's when we get those flipped and we try to have our kingdom over God's kingdom that things fall apart. So thy will be done, it simply means whatever you want, God. We place our wills under your will. Is it okay if you have a will? Absolutely. You're made to rule and reign with Christ, but it always has to be under the Father. So that was week, week, week two. Week three was this. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice that it's us and our. It's not, God, give me what I need and good luck to my neighbor. That's not the prayer. It's our bread, our daily bread together. So when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we are praying for those who struggle, and we're also praying for ourselves. We're praying, use me and others so that All of us may eat. All of us may eat. And here's the thing. You know this. There's always been enough food on the planet to feed everybody. It's a heart issue. Right? It's a distribution issue. It's an evil government issue that chooses to starve its people. To keep humanitarian aid out and let people starve. It's not that there's not enough food. There's always been enough food. God made the world there would be enough food for everybody. And there will be a day where there is plenty. And that's called the heavenly banquet. And in the Bible, bread is not just bread. It's also a metaphor for Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. He also says, I have food that you don't know of. My food is to do the will of the Father. Now we're back to for thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Each and every week we, we come back to this theme of, Lord, do what you want to do. Not my will, but yours. Which is the prayer that Mary prays when she receives Jesus in her womb from the Holy Spirit. It's the same prayer that Jesus learns from his mom that he prays in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. As we come to Holy Week and we place our, our face towards the cross as Jesus did. So not only is it doing the will of God, like Jesus always did perfectly, but it's also a metaphor for the heavenly banquet. Jesus, the bread of life, when we sit down at the Lord's table, which we basically pretend, so to speak, we, we represent what God did at the Passover and what God is going to do at the heavenly banquet. We come where all are welcome, and there's plenty for everyone. You know, in the whole history of the church, we've never run out of communion. Not one time. Thousands of times we've served. Anybody that comes up, they get bread. Every time they come up, they get juice. There's enough for everybody. And we do that on purpose so that everybody knows when you come to the Lord, there's enough for you. You're welcome. Because in God's table, there's no rejection there. That's the beautiful thing about heaven. Week four, last week. Forgive us our sins, our debts, our trespasses. Each of those have some nuance to them. Um, but basically, the, the idea is, and Jesus doubles down on this at the end of the prayer if you want to look at it in Matthew 6. God for, we're asking God to forgive us as we also have forgiven those who owe us, who have sinned against us who have come across our path in ways that were harmful to us or others. And the reason Jesus says this is because it's not possible for us to receive God's forgiveness if we're not also a person who is forgiving. 
It's simple, we don't have a lens for it. It's not that God's mad at you. It's not that God won't. It's that you don't have the capacity. And so that's a very important concept that I hope all of you get. If you're still wrestling with it, I'm more than happy to talk to you about it, but it is so important. And why is this? Well, um, what I want to make sure that I didn't get to say last week, but I want to say this week, is that you know this, that you, are, you already are forgiven. You don't have to earn that. We already have the unmerited, unconditional forgiveness of God. Uh, this is from New Testament professor Eugene Bourne. He says, whoever receives it is placed in a new relationship then that calls for and makes possible forgiveness of others. So your ability to forgive even is a gift of God. So when you receive forgiveness, that you are to be a conduit, a pass-through, so that you can be a redeemer as Jesus is a redeemer. You can set people's sins free. People who owe you, you can let them go. They may owe you apology. You can let that go. They may owe you money. You can let that go. You don't have to live and bound in, in the pain and the hurt of those relationships when people owe you. You actually have the power of Christ to set them free. Each and every one of you in this room. You have the ability to set people free. Jesus did it for you on the cross and the resurrection. And the question is, will we do it for others? Because that's what brings heaven to earth. That's God's will. That all would be forgiven and that all would forgive Because if we're going to be Christians, which are little Christ, then we are to be like Christ who forgives sins. So if Christ forgives your sin, then you forgive other sins. That's the way it works. And in case we we just can't get our minds around this, here's the thing. Think about heaven where God's will is done. Always, always what God's will is and what heaven is where what God wants done is done. So is there hate in heaven? No. There is no hate in heaven. So you can't bring it with you. You can't. It's not allowed in. So you can't bring unforgiveness with you. And this is what Jesus is saying. You have to forgive in order to experience what God has for you. But that's not on God. That's on on us, on our ability to actually live in the power of Christ to forgive others. Which brings us to this week. And do not bring us to the time of trial. That's the way the New Revised Standard Version puts it. Um, Do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Um, You may have learned it rescue us from evil and that's how we say it in the lord's prayer each and every week here uh, most scholars will say it's it's really not evil in general it really is about the evil one if you look at the greek and so in the bible it says time of trial and in rsv we say temptation well which is it is it time of trial or is it into temptation because they're not exactly the same thing there is actually a difference well so what is this time of trial that the bible talks about that jesus says Pray this way that you're not led into it. Well, you go to um, the garden. And when Jesus is praying to the Father for God's will to be done, not his. And it says this in Matthew. And going a little farther, Jesus threw himself down on the ground and he prayed, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, there's the same prayer, not what I want, but what you want. Your will be done. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not stay awake with me one hour? And then he says this, the same thing you find in the Lord's Prayer. Stay awake and pray what? That you may not come into the time of trial. Well, what is that? And then Jesus says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. New Testament professor Eugene Boring, he says it like this. An apocalyptic thought at the end of time, just before the final victory of God and the coming of the kingdom, the power of evil is intensified, and the people of God endure tribulation and persecution. And the disciple is instructed to pray that God, who always leads the people, that, that's not up for debate, we know that God leads the people, 
God will not bring them into this time of testing that right, that right before the end of time when the pressure might be so great as to overcome faith itself. And so when this, when this tribulation comes, it's okay for us to pray, God, we don't want to go through that. We don't want to be around when, when the end of the world is happening because it's going to be terrible. And the Bible says it will be terrible. There was this idea called the parousia. And, and everybody knew this, right? Because they walked and they talked with Jesus. Jesus uh, lived with the disciples. He woke up with the disciples. He went to sleep with the disciples. He ate with the disciples. And they saw him. So when he said, I'm going to be right back when he ascended, they thought Tuesday. Not someday thousands of years later. Because they were used to him coming and going. That happened all the time. Whether it was on the lake, or whether it was in the garden, or whether that was in the 40 days that he walked the earth. And he'd show up in Emmaus, and then he'd show up in Jerusalem. I mean, they were used to this, but it, it wasn't separated in much time at all. So again, in Matthew uh, chapter 24 this time, when Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, which overlooked the temple, still does today, the disciples came to him privately and they said, tell us, Jesus, when will this be, this time of trial, the end of the world? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, beware that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumor of wars. See that you're not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. So, you've heard this, right? When wars break out, people say, oh, end of the world's coming. When people have famines, oh, end of the world's coming. When earthquakes happen, oh, end of the world's coming, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's just the beginning. That's just the beginning of the birth pangs, Jesus says. Then they will hand you over to be tortured and will put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away. And people say, oh, look at the church. It's all fractured and messed up. The end of the world's coming. And they will betray one another and hate one another. Right? And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of the increase of lawlessness, Jesus says, the love of many will grow cold. And this is what we're supposed to know. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And this is good news of the kingdom. And that will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. That's what everybody expected. That's the time of trial. Jesus had talked very openly about this. And so when he says, pray that you don't come into the time of trial, they're praying, "Don't, don't let this happen. Don't let this happen. And, of course, if you were an adult during Y2K, you get this. People are like, oop. Clocks are going to flip, nukes are going to go, end of the world, right? This this happens every so often. Some of you remember that. And you still have the water that you bought at that time. still in your garage. (laughs) So, So if it's not a direct reference to the end of time, which it may be, it's still not happened yet. But if it's not that exactly, what is Jesus saying for us to pray today? If that's not our expectation tomorrow. Could happen tomorrow. But if it doesn't, what else might this mean? Eugene Peterson, I think, translates it exactly right. He says, keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. Both are real and both are a problem. Dallas Willard would uh, interpret it this way. He says, spare us from bad things that might happen to us. It's okay to pray that. It expresses the understanding that we can't stand up under very much pressure. It is a vote of no confidence in our own abilities. As the series of requests, petitions, and the Lord's Prayer begin with the glorification of God, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's how it starts. It ends with the acknowledgement of the feebleness of human beings. This is the last petition of the Lord's Prayer. Um, We'll find out next week how it ends. That's not a part of the original Lord's Prayer. That's added later. There's at least 10 different endings to the Lord's Prayer. By the way, we'll talk about that next week. 
But here's the, here's the thing. We say, lead us not into temptation because we can't handle it. Deliver us from evil because we can't deliver ourselves because we all need a Savior. Amen? Right? That's why we're here. We need a Savior. Right? If you don't need a Savior, then there's no reason, uh, you know, to be here. Right? Jesus is the Savior of the world. We are recognizing that we can't do it ourselves. So you start with the glorification of God, and we end with, yeah, and we need your help, and we need it now. So what is this temptation? If it's not time of trial, what is temptation? Why is it translated that way sometimes? Well, temptation is a powerful pull. I don't need to explain this to you. You know temptation, right? Temptation is a powerful pull to act regardless of what harm may come to us or others. It's not that you want bad things to happen to people necessarily. Some of you do. Um, and you've got to talk to Jesus about that too. But most times, temptation is, I just want to do X. And I'm going to do X because I want to. And whatever happens, happens. Might be fine. Might be catastrophic for someone else. I don't really care because that's what I want to do. So I'm doing it. And I hope it's okay, but if it's not, it does not change anything. I'm going to do it anyway. That's what temptation looks like. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, he writes it like this. He says, in the Bible... Holy people are tempted all the time. This is normative, friends. It's not whether you're going to be tempted. It's just when. And what are you going to do when it happens? Think about any big leader in the Bible other than Jesus. And even Jesus is tempted, right? Everybody in the Bible is tempted. So, so that's, that's normative. And we just have to get that right. No one's spared of this. He says, but being led into temptation would be like being dropped into it with no way out. And this is what we pray to be defended from. God never drops us into the heart of temptation with no equipment to face it and no way out. God never does that. So, let me ask you directly. Does God tempt us? You got to know this answer. No. no, thank you. The answer is no. He came to 915. So, uh, the answer is no. Right? The answer is no. And we know this because of Jesus' little brother, James. And thank God for James. He, he just lays it out. He tells you exactly like it is. He says, blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Temptation is going to come. You're blessed if you get through it. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one, when tempted, should say, I'm being tempted by God. For, read it with me, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So back in the 70s, there was this thing where everybody was like, oh, the devil made me do it. No. No, God, God doesn't tempt you, and he provides you a way out. James goes on, and in case you're missing it, he says, one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it, which is a great metaphor. All the fisher folk out here, right, the lure. Is there anything inherently bad about a little fishing lure going by a fish? No, if it goes by. But you and I both know how fishing works, don't we? It doesn't just go by once. And then, when that desire has conceived, and the fish eats the lure, it gives birth to sin. A lot of pain. And that sin, when it's fully grown, gives you a dead fish. Right? That's how it works. Leads to death. So do not be deceived, my beloved. This happens all the time, all day, every day. Adam Hamilton, in his book, he says it like this. Jesus is asking us to pray to our Father to lead us. As he always does, of course not into temptation, right? We're asking God to lead us and deliver us while it's the tempter, either within or without, who leads us into temptation. Both of those things can happen, and they do. I think C.S. Lewis is one of the wisest Christians that's been around uh, in the last hundred or so years. 
And he makes a great point in the preface to the screw tape letters. He says there are two problems with Christians when it comes to evil and the devil. And he says there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. That'll get your head kicked in. Evil's out there. It's real. You need to get sober about that because it does damage all the time. And it does a lot of damage if you don't know what your enemy's up to and kicking you in your head. The other, though, is to believe and to feel excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So, in some ways, if, if you think about theological perspectives, there are some folks that say evil's not a real thing, and there are others that all they talk about is the devil and the devils. Both of those are wrong-headed because you don't want to not know that evil's real, and you also don't want to give it too much credit and focus on something that's not God. You don't want that to become an idol either. He says, there is no uncreated being except God. It's not yin and yang. It's not God versus the devil. That's not the case. Read this with me. God has no opposite. He's the only uncreated being. God has no opposite. Satan, the fallen angel, the leader or dictator of the devils, is the opposite not of God, but of Michael, the archangel. Fallen angel, archangel. That's the battle. That's the battle. It's not God. And because Christ Jesus, the Son of God, lives in you, you are greater than the angels. You have more power than the devil. So you don't have to fall for that. But you have to make sure Christ lives in you because you don't have enough power without Christ to deal with that. So it's super important to understand. So we have to watch out for this, friends. We have to watch out that we don't get lulled into one direction or obsessed in the other. Paul writes this to the early church in Corinth. He says, so... If you think you're standing, watch out that you do not fall. No testing has overtaken you that's not common to everyone. It happens to all of us. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength because he's living in you. But with the testing, he also provides a way out so that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. Well, what's an idol? Well, for them, they would make little statues of the things that their hearts were on, but an idol is simply what has your heart. When you're quiet, when you're alone... When you think your thoughts, what comes to mind? Whatever that is, that's your idol. That's your God. That's what you worship and adore. Whatever that thing is, it's different for everybody. Now, my hope is, and the way to life is, that when you get quiet, you think about the goodness of God and all the gifts that he's given you, and you're grateful for it, and you give him thanks, and that draws you more into the worship of God. But for some people in this room, and and in every room, it's not God. When they get quiet... They worry about their kids, and their kids are their idol. Their money goes there, their thoughts go there, their time goes there, their energy goes there, and then when their kids either die or move out of the house, they're in trouble, real trouble. See this all the time. Kids are a terrible idol. They're a great gift of God, but a terrible idol. Sometimes it's a spouse. Sometimes it's a job. Sometimes it's food. I mean, you pick it. You know what I'm saying. You get quiet, you start thinking, what do you think about? That's your idol. And the thing is, it comes to all of us. Temptation is universal. It's a universal part of the human condition. So we're not going to worry about whether it comes. It's going to come. It's how do we respond? What do you do? Well, the wise person makes sure that we don't let it linger. You just don't do that. Because it's like the fish. The longer you linger, the more likely it is that you're going to end up hurting. And maybe dead. So when that happens, we, we need other people, other fish to come alongside us and go, that's a hook. Don't mess with that. It looks shiny, but it's no good, right? 
And so we ask God for help, and we ask others for help. That's what community's for. And the psalmist knows this. He, he would say, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste. Come quickly to help me because I need it. Don't let me hang out in temptation. Don't let me hang out where these things are lingering before me, and I'm getting weaker and weaker by the moment. And, and the, really the worst thing for religious people in particular is overconfidence. Excessive confidence in the strength of your own faith makes you vulnerable. When you think, oh, I got this. I've been praying three hours a day, read the Bible. I finished Disciple 1 and 2. I'm good, right? I'm, I'm, I've been to church, did my quiet time, I was in my small group. I got this. Somebody says, you know that thing that you're doing over there? That doesn't look wise. That's all right. I got great faith. Well, well, let's see how this works in the Bible. The Bible says that the mother of the sons of Zebedee, disciples, come to Jesus with her sons. They kneel before him, and she asks a favor of Jesus. And, and Jesus says to her, well, what do you want? That's what Jesus always says. What do you want? Because he wants to help folks. She said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Wow. I'd like to have met that lady. <laughs> that is bold. And Jesus answers, you don't know what you're asking. And he looks at the boys. And he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Because Jesus knows he's about to be arrested. He's about to be beaten. He's about to be flogged within an inch of his life truly because they knew how to do that. He was going to nearly bleed to death and then they're going to put him on a cross. And he's going to die. And he says, can you do that? They don't know that. They don't know that's coming, but Jesus does. And you know what they say? You bet. We are able You see the overconfidence. And when you get there, that is a dangerous place to be. And and it's tempting for all of us. We all get too big for our britches sometimes. Adam Hamilton puts it like this. He says, just because someone quotes scripture does not mean that they are leading you in the right path. Even the demons believe, James says. So we have this story, right, in the Bible about the temptation of Jesus. The devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem, to the holy city, and he places him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, he knows he's the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He's going to quote scripture to him. Huh. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus says back to him, it is written, right? Scripture to scripture, Jesus is the very word of God. And he says, do not put your Lord, your God, to the test. Now, be really careful with this religious stuff. Because the devil knows the Bible forward and backward. He's been around as long as Michael. So, I mean, if you think you know the scripture, the devil probably knows it better than you do. But it's not for good. So here's the thing. You have to surround yourself with other people who know the scriptures, who know you, who know temptation, who knows what's what. Because when you become isolated, you become vulnerable. When you become isolated without community... We will lead ourselves into temptation. We don't even have to worry about it coming to us. We'll find it. We'll just kind of walk into it. And and the first bishop of the church, Peter, St. Peter, the disciple Peter, he writes in 1 Peter, discipline yourselves. Right? Disciple yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil. Right? Very clear. It's not a concept. A roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Waiting, looking. Resist him, steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Everybody's tempted, everybody suffers. But when you get away from your community, when you try to do this on your own, bad things happen. 
There's a little dog named Gunner you may have seen a couple years ago. He took a little walk in front of his master, and he got a little far out in front of his owner, and this is what happened. Richard Wilbanks... Well, Gunner got a little too far out. And there was somebody watching him. Came for him. And thanks be to God, his loving father reaches down and is like, no. And he redeems him. Redemption is that dog's day of redemption. Opens the jaws. He runs free. And I would also say that Gunner's owner was pretty fortunate that the teenage alligator's mama wasn't right behind him. That would have been a different story. But that's the way it works. Sometimes there are these trials that simply just come upon you. A drunk driver hits your car. An illness comes to your family. You're simply taking your walk and... I mean, the devil just came for you. That happens. Not very often, but it still happens today. And so... There's a time of trial like that, but there's also temptation. What's the difference? Well, Adam Hamilton would say it like this. The devil cannot make us do anything. But he does have the power of suggestion. And he seems to know each of our weaknesses. He's watching you on your walk. He knows when you're hungry. He knows when you've got unforgiveness in your heart. He knows when you're angry. He knows when you're lonely. He knows when you're tired. And he waits for that moment. He's probably not going to bother you in the middle of worship. He's waiting. So you get home, and you're worried, and you're exhausted. You got any hunters in the room? Any, any deer hunters here? I got one. Really? Just one deer hunter in the whole room? Wow, 915 was full of them. So this is the way deer hunting works. When you go deer hunting, do you just go out and kill a deer? No. You set up your feeder. Isn't that the way you do it? Some people don't have cameras on their feeders. And a deer comes. And you know what the deer thinks? Holy smoke, deer corn. This is great. I don't have to go looking for food. It's right here. And it's delicious. And if I'm, and if I'm a religious deer, I go, thank you, Jesus, for giving me deer corn. <laughs> Never asking the question, I wonder why that's there. And you know what happens? Deer are really, really created by God not to fall for that. So they're up and they're around and they're looking like, I, I better get out of here. Like he puts that thing inside of you. Maybe you've known this thing where you're someplace you know you shouldn't be. You didn't know you shouldn't be there. But then you know you just know in your bones like, ah, like this is dangerous. I got to get out of here. Well, in this instance, on first reference, the deer eats the corn. And what happens? Nothing. He's fine. He eats the deer corn. It works out perfectly. Nothing wrong with that. Anything in, in, like particularly evil about deer corn? It's just corn. So he eats it. And he goes home and he tells the wife and kids, I've got the best corn today. 
And I'm like, that sounds odd, Dad, but, you know, okay. Next day he goes and he eats more corn. He's like, wow, it's still here. This is amazing. Nothing happens. Except the guy on the end of the camera is like, ooh, this guy's coming every day now. Comes back the third day, fourth day, fifth day. By the next week, he's bringing some friends with him because there's enough to eat for everybody. Seems like a great idea. Nothing bad happens. Must be okay. And then he comes one day. He eats the corn like he always has. He's not really anxious at all anymore. That's gone. That, and that was gone by like day four, five, six. I mean, he's 14, 21 days in now. And he just goes and eats like he always does. It's just what he does now. It's habit. Until he feels that burning in his heart. And he's confused. And he has the thought, I don't, I don't understand what's happening. And he's dead. That's it. Now, the hunter knew what was going to happen all along. Deer had no idea. But imagine if the deer actually had a book and a family of faith around him and said, don't ever go for deer corn. might happen once. But ultimately, I've seen what happens to other deer. So you don't want to do that. As tempting as it may be. And there's nothing wrong with deer corn. It's what's in the heart of a deer. So here's the thing. God leads us and protects us throughout all of Scripture, through the Holy Spirit, through our spidey senses, for those of you who follow Spider-Man, and through one another. Right? We help one another. Dallas Willard puts it like this, and he, he makes a distinction between temptation and trials. He says when trials are permitted, like when bad things happen to Gunner, right? It only means that God has something better in mind for us than freedom from trials. Our life is more than just getting an easier life. And sometimes God has something better for you than freedom from trials, and and he allows that. That's different from temptation, right? So I'm making a a clear distinction here. Sometimes bad stuff happens, and God allows it. He doesn't want it to happen, but he knows it's going to happen, and he allows it because something better is for you, which is different than the temptation stories. So when we pray for God to lead us and to deliver us from evil, we are praying again, thy will be done. Not mine, yours. It's the same prayer again this week, five weeks in a row. Not mine, yours. So here's your action step. I want you to think about your thoughts. What have you thought about in the last week that you think you might do? But you've not yet done it. You've not yet yielded to temptation. And on the face of it, there's nothing wrong with what you've done. And if other people looked at it, they wouldn't think anything of it. But you know, there's something in you, and you know that if this goes left unchecked, there's going to be a problem someday. You don't know when, but someday there's going to be a problem. Tell someone safe. Do not tell the town gossip. That's terrible. That's dumb. Right? you, you got to find somebody safe. And if you're here today and you don't have a single person in your life that you can talk to about that, talk to Brandon. He's, you can talk to me too. But you need, you need somebody safe. Uh, you may choose to go to a Catholic priest or a Lutheran pastor or a Presbyterian pastor so that it's not even a part of this community. It's part of a larger community so you feel safer because you don't want anybody to know, well, why are they in there talking to Pastor Mark? So, but you need to tell someone before it's too late. And God's not mad at you. And God hasn't given you more than you can handle. But you don't want to go to the deer corn day after day after day after day after day because you just don't know when that day is. So, sometimes we just roll through the Lord's Prayer. Bill, if you'll come on up. 
And it helps me sometimes if I'll just hear the Lord's Prayer in a new way. And so um, there is uh, a song called the Lord's Prayer that I learned as a kid growing up, and it, it helps me. I, I think it, when I think of the Lord's Prayer, I hear it in song, and Bill's going to sing it for us. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory confidence of the children of God, let us pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 